you're here, you already sense there's something out there, something magical and mysterious, just waiting for you to find. And you've probably already discovered it isn't as easy as just thinking happy thoughts. You're not alone. Generations of shamans, philosophers, seers, and scientists have pursued this eternal quest. Where their ideas come together, you'll find powerful tools to cultivate magic and self-mastery in your own life. Welcome to the Magic and Mastery Podcast. I'm your host, Donna Woodwell. I'm a former journalist, an author, a master astrologer, and a hermetic initiate, and it's my honor to be your guide. In each episode, I'll meet you at the crossroads of science and spirit, reason and intuition to help you discover the wisdom that works for you. Are you ready? The adventure awaits. Welcome back to the Magic and Mastery podcast. This is episode 16 on immunity. Now, with the coronavirus vaccines rolling out in the United States and around the world, I thought this was a great time to talk about the philosophical implications of immunity. Now, this isn't an episode on whether or not to get the shot. It is an episode about how to think about what immunity is and how it brings up the relationships between me and you and us and the rest of society and what that might mean for our own decision-making process. Yeah, it was definitely a lot of fun. Uh, but before we dive in, don't forget that we've added headings and timestamps to the show notes, as well as links to all the books referenced during the episode. And so you can find the show notes at www.magicandmastery.com slash podcast. And as always, don't forget to stay until the end because we always have a homework assignment for you, but to continue on your magical journey. And it's a fun little exercise for you. I like this one a lot. It's very simple and it'll make sense after you listen. So uh, let's get started. I thought it would be the perfect time to start an episode where we dive into the philosophical implications of immunity. Now, I thought of this when I was out on my road trip across the Texas countryside to get my first dose of the coronavirus vaccine. And the more I thought about it, a little bit of investigation I started doing realized that immunity is a really pregnant subject. Once you scratch the surface, it has all to do with me and you and my relationship to society and our relationships to science and our relationships to uh, holistic vision. So Chris, I'm so grateful that you decided that you were going to take on this subject with me and hopefully <laughs> we'll find entertaining and deep things for people to think about. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I think it's a super juicy and pertinent topic. And I kind of just want to sit back and listen to your story time. But... <laughs> uh, it's a question, I think, on everyone's mind as we begin our transition into this new phase of the virus world. And I say begin the transition because I suspect this is going to be a really long transition because of the nature of immunity. Now, in my search for, for ideas for this episode, I came across this really great book called, well, On Immunity and Inoculation by Ula Biss, which was written right before the pandemic in 2015. It was on her relationship for having a child and having to go through the whole 
vaccinate or non-vaccinate conundrums that all new mothers seem to go through in this day and age. But it led her on a journey to reflect on the nature of immunity itself. All kinds of uh, little tidbits about the history and philosophy. It's not a book on science. It's a book on the philosophy of science. So if you like those kinds of things in the tradition of, you know, Wendell Berry and what are people for, like an essay, I highly recommend it. You can find a link in the show notes if you want to look it up for yourself. But I think it's a great place to start the conversation because immunity comes from the word munis, which is a Latin word that has to do with my duty to the group, the collective. And because we're at this time in history where it's so complicated for us to think about my responsibility to a group larger than myself. I mean, it seems like we've gone the opposite direction for the last 40 years. It's all about me, my freedoms, what I want to do. And those people out there, those others who are imposing on my freedoms, that even the conversation is hard to have. But it's so very important given all the other things that are going on because it has links to how we relate to the climate, which is a collective thing, how we relate to social justice, which is a collective thing, how we relate to immigration, which is a collective thing, all these other things that are going on, the philosophical roots are, it's the same realm of conversation. So it seems like a great time to start having the conversation amongst ourselves. It is definitely time to have that conversation, Donna. Like this is literally in the zeitgeist. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> literally what we've been going through and you're absolutely right this is actually really just the beginning of the conversation like the coronavirus is just going to be the you know first of like i think many viruses to, to come in this little sort of amped up evolutionary sort of cycle we are we're in and you know with the permafrost melting too there's bacteria that hasn't been like <laughs> defrosted in ten thousand years things like that and it's really a good question to ask like how does the body respond but i love this philosophical approach about the the collective versus the individual because that's always where it kind of comes down to on one part like we're always you know tending our own garden like we see the world through only our eyes and yes we can be empathetic and yes we can have shared experiences but it all comes down to that kind of singular reality so then like you add the social contract in it as becoming societal beings, collective beings, how do we kind of like manage those nuanced areas? How do we, you know, protect, not, not say protect our individuality, but keep that individual vision and fusing that with the collective. And that's, that's tough. That's a dance. I think that's like always moment by moment and in flux and adapting. And I feel like ultimately comes down to like trusting well, <laughs> trusting your heart compass to a degree, you know, um, just take like the, the mask example that we have all had to kind of go through. There was two mentalities with that. You're either wearing a mask to shield yourself from getting sick or you're wearing a mask to, to stop spreading it to other people. And I think that's a that's a fundamental difference. One, you're you're not just going out to protect yourself, but you're protecting others. And I feel like that is just a, a subtle and drastic mind shift. And I'm really glad we have 
a good forty-five minutes to talk about this subject because every single thing that we bring up has threads to a million other things. And sometimes when we are talking about these knotted up webs of meaning, it gets really difficult to talk about them in a linear conversation way. And so the conversation becomes here, there, and everywhere because that's the nature of the reality on the subject. Because what you just said, I can say, well, of course, with the climate breaking down, if you think of the climate as a body and the earth as a body, then climate change is an immune response to something, to a kind of virus that we have put into the atmosphere. And it's going to change how people move around. And so migration is going to become an issue as the and, you know, as the sea levels rise and as people migrate, it's not just permafrost that's going to bring all kinds of diseases and spreads. It's going to be people moving around and interacting in new ways. And so it's no surprise that when you talk about immunity being your immune system and your body fighting off invaders, as we like to talk about it in the <laughs> United States, then that metaphor, when applied to other contexts, becomes you know, the war against climate change or the war against immigration or the war against something else. And all of a sudden, we're off to the races in the me and them. But it's the me and them co conversation that's creating the problem in the first place. <laughs> so around <laughs> and around we go. So I feel, I feel for our world, we all, we all are so frustrated that it's hard to make headway it's hard to get out of the partisanship but we don't have spaces for these complicated conversations right now we have we have a war footing metaphor we have us versus them media discussions in sound bites we have instagram and facebook and twitter tiny little one-liners that we're trying to um, one-up the other person with, where people are talking f more because it's a moment of self-expression than a moment of understanding. And that, again, is the opposite of where we need to go in these conversations. So I... I don't have any easy answers yet either. There are no easy answers to this. There's just the paradox of moving into a new paradigm, a new way of being. We need to write a new story for ourselves with different rules, less war, more cooperation, more interaction. But how we get there is going to mean re rejecting some very fundamental concepts about the way we talk about the world, the way we talk about each other, and the way we conceive of the self and what the self is, and and have it less be a, a billiard ball that's bumping off of other billiard balls and more as an approximation. Now, this holistic vision is an old, old vision, and it's the one we have to go back to. It's an old vision because we used to see the world as an organic whole. That's what gave birth to magic. That's what gave birth to all of our ancient spiritual concepts and how they worked. And 
things like uh, the poet. Was it John Donne who said, no man is an island entirely of itself? Um, Don't ask for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Um, Poets like that, they got it. They got, they understood that we are at best an approximation with very blurry edges. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you actually brought that point up because it's really, it's kind of funny as, and what you mentioned earlier too, just like the nonlinear uh, uh, sort of quality of these conversations because they are like these links and tethers. But we're at a point where we do have to write this new story, yet it's bringing back a reconnection, this older tale that we've forgotten, this, this sort of hearing healing narrative that we're on about reforging that that intimate interconnected um presence with with the planet with each other while simultaneously pioneering this new path so it's at one step like this retrograde motion yet this forward motion happening simultaneously and like like great like clockwork gears you know everything's kind of simultaneously going on backwards and forwards and up and down and interwoven the past and the future all blurring together in the present and it, that's like the this this crucial moment because part of the reason why we have this this kind of war mentality this separation this us versus them that, that you mentioned is because of that fundamental disconnect i mean we can you know we're not going to blame certain ideologies like i think things sort of and the experiment of humanity sort of unfolds in its own way for its own kind of learning lessons. But we're at a point where we do realize that, you know, we are a part of this ecosystem. Uh, we are interconnected. Everything kind of affects one another, not getting to the, the cause and effect game. But, it, but it's true. There is this level of profound interconnection that we have lost, like in the Western world, and um, so, so many of the elements that we've, we've seen, like you were talking about social justice on the societal level, social political level, on an environmental level, on a, just on a mind body health level, that the root of those issues come from that disconnect. So, and <laughs> maybe we have to save this for another episode, but this also gets into the whole uh, dichotomy between transhumanism and like, sort of like the traditionalist that, that's kind of happening, these two di- divergent paths of humanity where, yes, at one level, we do have to keep, pro- you know, life is forward always in motion. It's, you know, that's, that's forward progress is is important, but without healing the wounds we left behind, then we just kind of carry that forward. So I really find it interesting, like at this time we have, you know, we're planning our Mars colonization while at the same time, like, like areas of like Detroit and Baltimore in the U.S. like are like have these beautiful permaculture urban farming movements going where they're just, you know, kind of resurrecting and resuscitating these um, these dead and decayed cities and kind of bringing life back into them. And I think that's important to have this biodynamic flux with with technology and with the earth like like sustainable energy like you could tie that into it as well and that does create like this uh, like this profound immunity for the culture itself and in that way that we're talking about it you know that gets back to the root of what a vaccine is (laughs) and I learned a lot from this little baby book. And one of the great things, which I 
I guess I'd learned back in college and I just totally forgot that vaccinations are not some new 20th century phenomenon. They've been around for a while. They've been around um, because in its most recent incarnation. Now, chances are it was practiced back in the Ottoman Empire in the Indus River civilization. We keep reinventing this because it is a natural thing that we have observed when humans are interacting with animals. Uh, but most recently in England, in the uh, 1600s, 1800s, somewhere in that range, you know, they realized that the milkmaids who were milking the cows never got smallpox. And they realized that they didn't get smallpox because when the cows would have cowpox, that was getting on the hands of the milkmaids. And that was, in essence, inoculating them because cowpox and smallpox are close enough viruses that it was giving the milkmaids a lower dosage case of the virus. Therefore, if you could introduce cowpox to the human system, you could prevent them from getting smallpox. And so the reason we have the word vaccination, because the Latin word for cow is vaca. And I live in Texas. You know, I am used to seeing la vaca. That's the cow, you know, you know the, the cattle drives. And so to think of that they are vaca nations, <laughs> <laughs> that they are cowanations. We are cowanating ourselves. So in essence, the roots of vaccine come from the merger of the human and the animal that produces a stronger organism, better able to fight off some um, a virus that is harmful to the systems of both. So they got more sophisticated in their ability to dose each other. And so instead of using uh, cows, they would use human uh, infections. And so the original vaccinations were taking the scrapings from the pus of uh, a of one infected person and using it on another infected person. Had some downsides because while it was effective against the smallpox, unfortunately, it was creating other issues. Like if they happened to have syphilis or something else, it was transferring those as long as well. And so that wasn't the most... Um, that wasn't the safest way to go about creating vaccinations. And so eventually by the 20th century, we were learning how to create sterile versions of the virus by growing them in usually chicken eggs. Uh, but again, using the crossover between the human and the animal population to create viruses and eventually grow them in labs so that they are in sterile conditions and no longer cross-contaminating ourselves. And finally, these newest vaccinations, they go a step further than that. They're just taking genetic pieces of the virus. It's not even actually the whole virus anymore to just, it's like, it's like homeopathy. We just keep taking finer and finer versions of the virus to uh, inoculate ourselves from, from these diseases. So when we embrace that process, and it can be a very powerful tool, a very powerful lesson for our own immune systems to be able to learn what a damaging virus looks like so that we can form the antibodies in order to fight it off from our own systems. And when we do that, we are every person who participates in this process becomes, if you jump up 
to the body politic or the collective garden. We are, you are one person who is forming the immune defense of the collective. And it's that being part of the immune defense that makes you, that's your part of your duty to being able to help the entire collective be stronger and more resilient than it could if we were all discrete parts not coordinating with each other. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It makes total sense. And, um, you know, I'm coming from like a, a plant herbalist background. That's sort of like the mentality that we have with working with these plants to actually, actually, you know, your body has a pretty amazing immune system itself without vaccinations. And when it's like in working in tandem and in harmony with the natural world, then you do have this profound defense mechanism itself. But then that's a similar mentality where you are becoming in a symbiotic relationship with the planet. That reminds me, the word inoculation comes from the same Latin word that we use for grafting one part of one plant onto another part of another plant. That's actually where the word inoculate the, That's the, fantastic. I didn't know that. From. I didn't know that either. I learned a whole bunch in this book. All, all the <laughs> geeky things that like stick in my brain forever and I subject everyone to. <laughs> this was a rich source of Donna geeking out on etymology. It's interesting that this concept of vaccinations, this crossover between human and animal was developing at the same time in Europe when there was also the emergence of the scientific paradigm, which came along with a new constructs about um, hygiene in general. And so recognizing that contagion can make you sick, but that contagion had a moralistic edge to it. They called it filth theory, that things that were filthy would keep you from your purity and therefore they would make you sick, make you immoral, make you somehow less than. And and it just it just got tangled up with the growing social Darwinist movement that certain races were better than other yeah. races, that the other was inherently dangerous, was in inherently contagious and would somehow wreck the purity of the in-group. And we still carry that even today. And even if we call it by different terms, you know, we see it in everything from nationalism, anti-immigration, white supremacy, um, to the anti-vaxxers themselves, who are using, instead of filth, the word becomes the toxins. So the toxins in the vaccine are what's creating the impurities in the system. And the challenges with talking about these things is that, you know, talking about the toxins in the vaccine is a worthwhile conversation. It's when we take it out of context, we pull pieces out of the ether and they're missing their whole frame which is kind of anti-holistic it's a, it's ironic that people who are really <laughs> concerned about having a holistic philosophy and natural this and purity are sometimes being the least holistic in their thinking <laughs> you know it's fun it's it's well it's really true and it's also this this fundamental 
uh, pendulum swing that humanity goes through from one extreme to the other. Because then if you are looking at like, oh, everything has to be completely pure, then we're over sanitizing everything. Then obviously, like, you know, where that goes in the social level, and that's horrifying and that mentality. But it's the same thing, too. When the coronavirus sort of started, everyone was cleaning, cleaning, cleaning like 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 crazy. But you need healthy bacteria. We also, you know, we forget that we're filled with par parasites and bacteria, that this is all working in symphony with each other and that it's all about balance. I wish, you know, society can walk that middle way. That, that seems like a really drastic for some reason. There is no such thing as purity because we are an approximation. Exactly. Our boundaries are inherently permeable, and mm. I am literally made up of the atoms that are all around me. Yeah. And people get hyper fixated on the wrong things, right. which is just the way our brains work. We we get hyper fixated on things that we think we understand, and yet we're missing the bigger issues. Like mm -hmm. people are terrified of sharks, and they're terrified of venomous snakes. And yet the number of deaths by shark attack and venomous snakes in the United States is a tiny, tiny, small fraction compared to the number of deaths by heart disease, cancer, heck, just sitting at your desk all day long. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all of these things have huge impacts on our health and longevity. Driving the car, these things are all more dangerous mm -hmm. than sharks. And yet people have nightmares about sharks. They don't have nightmares about driving their car unless they've already been in an accident. Right. So we seem to have a really difficult time evaluating risk. And we mm. seize on to, uh, what's that word? Sensational bits of information and then build entire belief systems around it and then only believe what fits into the belief system. Right. Right. It's absolutely true. I mean, you saw that. I mean, especially in the U.S., we really like to, to latch on to fear and it was a similar thing what happened like we were talking about you know, this most recent world we're we're living in you know not exercising is far more dangerous than you know than the virus from itself from the long standpoint not taking care of your mentality uh you know stress is the worst thing for your immune system so if you're just fearing about completely everything stressing your body out you guarantee you're going to get sick uh but that's a moot point but um, but you do latch on to like these sensational sort of images and, you know, knock on wood, I'm supposed to go hiking later, but you know, I'm in the desert. It's my foreign terrain right now. And you know, there's rattlesnakes out here, scorpions out here, tarantulas. I'm like, yeah, that's definitely on my mind as I'm like going through new terrain. Have I come across one yet? No, but again, don't want to jinx myself for later, but it's really true. We do like, and, and this is just also this amplified survival mechanism that we don't really know how to implement in our modern world. Like everything has to be this grand trigger because we're still built that way. We're still wired the same way from 200,000 years ago. And, you know, we're, we still respond in the same way, even though our stress, our fears and triggers are completely different. There's not, um, you know, so it comes down to an issue of consciousness being the fundamental problem with uh, everything. <laughs> That's negative cognitive bias. Yeah, there you go. Truly is wired into our system. Because if you think about it, um, if you are walking along in your uh, early human field in Africa and you 
have a choice between paying attention to the juicy little berries or the saber-toothed tiger that's running at you. You better believe you're going to be paying attention to the saber-toothed tiger that's running at <laughs> you because um, the consequences of missing the tiger is far more disastrous than the consequences of missing the berries. And right. so our brains are wired to give preference to perceived threats. And in psychological terms, it's called a negative cognitive bias. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately for all of us in this modern world, it's hardly ever a useful way to perceive situations because it's not capable of evaluating rationally what's truly there. Because back right. to the, there are rarely saber-toothed tigers running down the street. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. In our modern society. There are rarely sharks swimming around in Iowa. And things like this do happen. <laughs> but, I mean, we have a mediated world where, I mean, I was taught in journalism school that dog bites man is not a, head, is not a headline. Man bites dog is a headline because it's unusual. And so we put up the weird and the bizarre and the unusual because they're unusual. And then we use them as reasons for our things. I mean, this gets back to other viral things that behave exactly like guns, in a way, yeah. are a virus. You know, the United States has more guns than citizens. For every 100 people in this country, there are 125 guns. But the logic goes... Well, if they have a gun, I want one too, because right. therefore I will protect myself. And yet, all the studies show that you are more likely to be killed by your own gun than someone else's gun, or someone in your family taking the gun that you just bought and using it against you, or you using it against yourself. You know, there are myriad reasons why, and I, I, this isn't me going on an anti-gun rant. No, but it's it's totally related, and like, and this also goes back to. The, the social the social sort of um uh entity like the like the what's say like the US government in itself like it's a very highly militarized force and even the police force is highly militarized and ill trained for this equipment so i understand about this this well you know taking this this whole gun concept and gun control laws and stuff into in effect that you know the so the, the higher integral field has to show face first before the populace can kind of fall and show suit so if like the you know the collective entity itself is not moving in those directions then you can understand the fear around people not wanting to move in that direction too so it just kind of exasperates the issue but and, and anyway. we don't know how to have these conversations we don't know how to talk in these multi-layered ways together. Everyone wants a simple answer. I know everyone's a simple answer. I have been teaching astrology and magic courses for the last 15 or 20 years of my life. And people are like, well, what does it mean? I'm like, well, it depends on the context. It depends on the circumstances. It depends on your own personal experience. Have you tried it out for myself? No, I want you to tell me what to do. And we are conditioned for sound bites. We are conditioned for easy answers. Perhaps I, mean, I, I sympathize. There's so much noise in the world. People are yeah. so overwhelmed. They're desperate for 
to make some sense of it all and quickly because it's what keeps the other away. It keeps the darkness mm-hmm. away and the mystery away because that seems mm-hmm. threatening because, again, we are othering everything we don't understand. It's Yeah, it's very true. And it's the same thing of how we intake nutrition. I mean, media nutrition is highly important as well. And like, like how many of us actually just like sit down to eat our meal and eat slowly, like, you know, like we were kind of like built to do, you know, it's constantly this fast consumption and we're constantly watching stuff as well. So we're like over saturated with information, stimuli and food and everything. And, and that's like kind of affects our mental digestion as well, you know? So it's, it's, it's wild. And it's, it is that, that pulse and that slow down that pull back. And, you know, you can go through so many reasons of why this, why that, but they're, they're kind of, you know, pointless. They can be fun storylines. Um, and that's, I think, important too. That you have to separate what is, what is, I mean, everything is story, but kind of what story are you kind of latching onto? And what are you sort of like feeding into? Um, I think that's highly important. As we other things, as yeah. we push them out, so we have some unknown relationship with things. Um, that brings up questions about trust and vulnerability. And studies have shown, this is also in the book, that the more vulnerable people feel, the more likely they are to push away the other even harder. Yeah. So if you feel vulnerable to poverty, you feel vulnerable to injustice, you feel vulnerable to disease, you're going to dig in and say, I want the immigrants gone. I want everything that's not like me away to trying to give yourself some feeling of safety. And trust gets harder and harder to come by. You don't trust the other. You don't trust the government. You don't trust really anybody. And when you're not trusting anybody, can the social collective actually be a leader if there is no trust. Absolutely true. And it builds up the shell of fear. Like it, it, a, a, it's, it's a scarcity mentality that sort of sets in, you know, like nothing's going to ever be enough or we don't have enough, you know, or like, you know, climate refugees coming in, they're going to take land, take job, take food, whatever, kind of whatever that means. That's all based on complete fear and, and what you're saying, vulnerability. And you do build up these walls, these crystalline sort of structures, which is, it's a natural cycle too. Walls being, you know, become built and then they crumble and fall. C- cities and civilizations rise and they fall. So is that rise and fall? That's the ebb and flow of life. And that, you know, really do what, what kind of like what we see happening feels like ultimately rooted back to that ultimate fear of death, fear of the unknown, fear of that great release, you know. And that's everything we kind of do is to kind of ultimately protect ourselves and we do shell up and we create we sever and disconnect and from further kind of um uh, perpetuating the all the elements that we're kind of going through and that disconnection and it's ultimately all all out of fear and it's really it's really tragic and really sad and really under you know understandable in a lot of ways but you know that's the the great unifier i mean that if you think about anything connecting life and death that's uh unites literally every living thing and non-living thing. I mean, eventually the star goes Nova and the galaxy collapses. I mean, so literally (laughs) 
literally nothing to worry about. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, this is, these conversations need to happen because uh, there was a great line toward the end of the book that said, um, you know, taking information out of context is like taking one part of the body out of context with the rest of it. And bad things happen when you start ripping the arms off of stuff. <laughs> and <laughs> nice. and that's true, that we we can't divorce it from the context. And I would guess most of us know at least someone in our family, in our social circles, who we disagree with and that those gaps are getting wider for me it's my parents and i love my parents to death they are very smart people and yet they have you know advanced degrees and yet they're retired and watching you know fox news all day long and it's hard to even have these conversations about anything because the basic assumptions that we're starting with are so vastly different that it's hard to even understand. It's hard to have a conversation when you don't understand where someone else is coming from. And to sit down and dig these things out would take hours and hours and hours and hours of conversation and self-honesty and self-reflection do we even have spaces for that in our lives when people are like running off to the next thing? And so at best, you agree to disagree. At worst, you have someone saying, well, I'm so sorry. I love you so much, but I'm sad you're going to hell. You know, <laughs> it's, <laughs> but I love yeah, you anyway. Good. And there's nothing I can do about that. It's, that's hard. That is a hard place to be. And there are no easy answers there are just There's, no easy answers there are not but you totally like you, you this is like the like a great point like in <laughs> life thrives on diversity and we do need a diverse kind of mentality and points of views and it's so important to have these conversations like you said it will take hours and hours to unpack like this is why we just need to like sit around the campfire and just like sh you know, surrender our egos a little bit mm -hmm. we latch on to our ideas like there are self-identity so much that we kind of like you know we close our ears to new ideas new concepts but then also this mentality that if you disagree with someone then you're having an argument and I feel like that's the silliest notion I've ever come across. It's like, no, you you can disagree and have a conversation with someone about that. And then, yeah, so like maybe you're not always going to, uh, you know, see eye to eye. But, you know, if you're kind of open hearted with it and you know, have an open mind, then you learn new ideas and new concepts. And maybe that will kind of like sit with you and unpack over time. Um, and vice versa, like, doesn't have to be one is right, one is wrong. And this, again, this polarity, this us versus them mentality. But there's room for different points of view. There's room for different perspective. And, and it's okay to, like, have conversation around that. It's okay to disagree. And it doesn't have to be like we're having this massive argument and debate and, and whoever is right is going to come out this victor. And then that's the ideology that's going to, you know shine i think that's just ridiculous and unhealthy um, not yeah. only is that ridiculous and unhealthy 
Um, but while you were talking, I was pulling a book off my shelf that I had from graduate school that reminds me that uh, the book is called, it's by Ber uh, Peter Berger and Thomas Luckman called The Social Construction of Reality. And it's a treatise on the sociology of knowledge. It basically argues that our reality bubbles, what we think of as reality is a social construction. It's not something that we sit on a desert island and create all by ourselves. We create it in dialogue with our environment, our dialogue with the people around us, our family, our friends, our larger society. So if we don't have those conversations, our reality is smaller. Our reality is less evocative. It would be like, you know, never reading a book again. <laughs> oh God, no, that's horrifying. There's, there's a nightmare for you. <laughs> I know, it's my personal nightmare. Never, ever, ever having that fertilizing influence of other mm. ideas. And... You know, it gets me back to, we, we were talking about this right before we started, that, um, you know, there is the old Empedocles model of the cosmos as being moving back and forth between the poles of love and strife. And as we cycle back and forth, we shift our predominant worldview from love and and how we can harmonize with one another to the battle that we have to have to make ourselves better. And one side cannot exist without the other. But when one becomes more dominant, problems always follow in the wake. Yeah, it's absolutely. And that's the solidification, that crystalline sort of process that like life kind of goes through, like it builds these structures and then it kind of decays and withdraws and then everything kind of starts over again. But it's super important. Like, same thing you brought up reading just a little while ago and like i'm sure you don't read just like one genre like over and over like no like read multiple genres like stimulate your mind stimulate different ideas have different conversation and it's super important because we do like everyone has a dominant filtered reality like whether it's based on you know uh economic class race uh, your your environment things those are all levels and filters that shape your reality so those become, you know, crystallized over time. The keep the the antidote to that is to have, uh, to to have new information coming your way, going to new environments, you know, keeping that open mind and sort of being malleable and not to be completely rigid. Like, like again, we kind of latch onto these ideas that form our identity, and that I feel like that becomes when it's completely rigid and crystalline and stagnant that's when life stops you know motion stops you, you want the short pithy version of that <laughs> yeah, sure it, it's this the more fearful you become the more small-minded you become yeah, there you go it's it's so true it's so true and then it reflects outwards into hate and anger and you can see like when that's propelling outwards you can see that's coming from a profound sadness and fear within and within that person's heart. So get back to the immunity. <laughs> <laughs> I can understand people being concerned about vaccinations in general. I mean, hmm. I remember, you know, 
when I had my daughter, they gave me this vaccine schedule. I was like, oh my God, there's an awful lot of shots on here. And apparently in like the 50s, we were vaccinating regularly against five different diseases. And when I was born, it was seven. And now it's 14. And so the number of shots in the course is like 26 or 28. It just goes on and on and on. It's a lot more than I had. And when I got out my vaccine records, because I actually have my original vaccine records all the time since I was born, there are way fewer on there than my daughters have. My daughter has better immune system based on vaccinations than I do. <laughs> I, I got some extra doses when I went to like traveling around the world, like yellow fever and cholera and a bunch of other things. But um, it just, it can be, it can be intimidating, especially when you're used to it being some other way. We're all inherently fundamentally conservative about the way things were when we were kids. We tend to carry with us as we go forward because it's what we're comfortable. It's what we're used to. It's part of the known thing. And moving into the future where it's different, that's the unknown. So we are less, we are less comfortable about it. But I realized that unless you have a really good doctor or advocate or someone who's explaining to you what's happening, why it's why it's done the way it is, talking to you about risk versus risk balance and the, what's the risk of this vaccination versus the risk of not having the vaccination. If you don't have those conversations, then I understand switching into the narrative of I want my child to be pure oh my God, I could be responsible for causing injury to my child. I don't want to be in that realm. Therefore, no. And and stopping all the vaccinations and calling it conscientious uh, objections. In fact, the conscientious objectors for war, that was originally a concept for vaccinations. Because oh, wow. I didn't know that either. That was a term that came up in English law because um, some people... Some people were avoiding vaccinations and some people were saying, no, I don't want that vaccination. So there's a there's a, a fundamental difference between just not doing it because you forgot or you um, don't want to pay for it or whatever. You know, you just you just didn't do it. And I I am saying, no, I'm not doing this on purpose. <laughs> so it's not negligence. It's intentional. And so that's what right. the word conscientious objectors are. It meant someone who is intentionally objecting to the thing itself. And, and so the fact that we can use a term from the anti-vaccination movement from the 1800s in the Vietnam War <laughs> tells you about the mentality is cross- they're cross-pollinating each other. And I understand. So I understand why there can be a lot of fear. But that means you're not putting it into context of the larger issues going on in the world. Like um, there are vaccinations that have small amounts of mercury in them. Tiny amounts of mercury because it makes them shelf stable. Uh, we were talking about this yesterday. And for some people, it's like, oh, my God, you're putting mercury into my system, and that's polluting my child and causing all kinds of issues. What's Yeah, there's a tiny amount in, but there's far more amounts in the environment for other sources than the tiny amount that's in the vaccine. 
And if it wasn't in the vaccine, then it wouldn't be useful to go to all of these less developed countries that don't have sophisticated refrigeration systems and all kinds of other things that enable the vaccines to be used by larger sections of the population. And so you are, you are risking a whole system of environmental injustice, of the injustice of having some countries with like a lot of wealth being able to afford vaccines that can be refrigerated versus places that don't get health at all because of what? (laughs) And like I said, these subjects get really, really complicated really fast. And I, I don't wanna live in a world where such things are forced onto people because that's another issue. <laughs> I, that's, a, that's like a sci-fi horror movie where the government is holding people down at gunpoint, which they have done in certain times and places in the world and forcing them to get vaccinated. But on the flip side, if enough people don't step up and realize that this is, this is a duty that can be done out of love for the collective then we don't ever stamp out the disease. And another story that I learned from the book, I actually had to look this one up. I was like, you serious as this actually happened? Um, The United States government, in its search for Osama bin Laden in Pakistan and Afghanistan, used, the CIA used the cover of a vaccination program to collect DNA evidence to track down Osama bin Laden. And the information leaked and the Taliban leaders got so angry that they started shooting all vaccination workers, even the legitimate ones. This sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it's actually documented in Scientific American and the the uh, New York Times. I looked it up. I was like, really? So it got so bad, and these were the polio vaccinations, that uh, polio is so transmissible that polio samples were showing up in the sewage of places as far away as Egypt and Syria and creating a outbreak, a resurgence of polio when it had been going down for a really long time. So the United States government apologized and they promised they wouldn't do it again knock on wood. But we get back to trust. If we're supposed to trust anybody, our own government, or what about the the Pakistanis who already have lots of reasons not to trust the West, far more historic reasons than this one. What does that do for trust? So again, complicated, complicated, complicated thing. And once trust is violated, it takes so much longer to rebuild it in some meaningful way. And in some times, I'm not sure it can be rebuilt because the memory lasts really long time. And it takes a kind of leap of faith, which, again, if you don't feel safe to begin with, is a very hard thing to ask people to perform. Absolutely. And it's kind of it's kind of funny that we circle around this also this element of trust, but of fear, too, because not everyone going into that vaccination is having your mentality that you are doing this for a more heart opening, greater good. A lot of that is fear around 
I'm going to get sick or I want to get back to the world the way it does. So I want to get vaccinated. And that's still a fearful mentality. And, and, you know, and I kind of in the middle ground with this one, because like there are times science of vaccination is phenomenal. There are some serious diseases that really, you know, yeah, probably should be vaccinated for. But I think, you you know, it's again, weighing that, that, that cost. Um, because like what you mentioned, like if you're from your childhood vaccinations to your daughter's room, and it's not necessarily that there are more viruses, more diseases. It's just that we're our, you know, our technology is improving, that we're identifying more. Um, yes, of course, things mutate and new. I mean, we're constantly in flux, but it's a similar thing with like all the social inju injustice that we're coming through. We're we have more access to what is going on. We're interconnected with, with, with the internet and everyone has, you know, camera phones and things like that. So we're seeing it more. We're we increased our awareness of these things. So my, my view with that is at what point, like what, at what point do you kind of trust and also that in yourself and, or in the ultimate kind of flow of life that's going in the right direction? Cause we can take that to a, a whole nother extreme where we're just kind of, ultimately living in this complete bubble world or completely going down the transhumanist route where we are just like, you know, injecting little nanites and, you know, which, which could be fine. I mean, could be great. <laughs> could be awesome. Everything ultimately is okay too. So it's funny, like how in either extremes, you know, it can center back around to fear depending on your point of view and, you know, just that middle ground, there's, there's a middle ground, there's a middle road where, you know, things, I don't know. You can kind of trust in, in that you're kind of going the, in that right direction. I don't know. Uh, yeah, there are, I think, legitimate reasons to be wary. I worked for a hospital system. You know, the idea that the medical establishment and all of science knows everything is completely false. And that's based on its own hubris. <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I remember what I was also going to say. Can I interject real quick mm -hmm. and that, that's my thing too it's like it seems like there's like extreme modalities like a lot of things in the western world western medicine are great for emergency situations but my thing is like there are literally are plants that are very healing there's there's there, the more uh in less invasive least less drastic less sort of taxing on the body approaches that you can kind of heal things and like we lost that connection with that knowledge and like ha restoring that first seems like a, this is a beautiful step. So then you don't necessarily have to do something that could be very taxing your system or hypothetical. You don't know the outcome for it and what will be like 10 years down the road, that type of thing. And then, you know, implementing the drastic measures like that's yeah, drastic measures are usually best considered last resort. Right. Unfortunately, we especially in the United States, prefer the drastic measures approach because we ignore so much. Um, in fact, the one of the innovations that the hospital system w that was doing, you know, 25 years ago was recognizing that, okay, people are sick and they wait and they wait and they wait and they wind up in the emergency room. Yeah. The emergency room is the most expensive pe place to treat sick people. Bar none. It is the most labor-intensive, drastic, interventionist that you can possibly get. And people who don't have health care 
don't have health insurance, can't afford to go to the doctor before they get sick. And so they end up in the emergency room. So if the hospital system, which was responsible for a large section of the charity care in the entire metropolitan area said, okay, let's, we can fix this. We will fix this by insuring everyone. Anyone who walks in the doors of one of our facility and they don't have insurance, we're giving them an insurance card and we're going to self-insure them because it is cheaper for us to self-insure 300,000 people than it is for us to raise money to continue to try to provide emergency care for whatever portion of that population would wind up in the emergency room. And so encourage people to start moving down and like go to the go to your here's your health and then build clinics i'm like okay there aren't enough clinics in places we'll just build the clinic too so we'll give you the insurance card we will build the clinic go there get your diabetes treated get everything managed on a simpler level Mm -hmm. and keep them out of these super expensive hospitals which you know to me was like that is the most logical thing i can possibly think of to do and yet listening to the conversations among we can't possibly have socialized health care yeah. it's somehow it's, it's, that it's somehow evil today. it's somehow evil and yet it's the most rational way to manage a social good you don't have to give up your private doctors <laughs> you don't have to do any of those things no. you just have to make sure people have options to be able to go and deal with the care where it is best used to being delivered and i exactly that's the value system of the culture itself so i don't know what actually it's happening with that because it's a double standard that happens because at the same time like we you know we have like the anti-abortionists and we're like you know pro-choice pro-life yet we give we don't care about the actual life itself when it actually comes to fruition which is super ironic and these double standards drive me nuts but you're also absolutely right that we wait i don't know if this is just a universal human thing and maybe it's because change is difficult and you know you do have to take those slow steps and kind of creates this whole sort of um uh, evolution of self that needs to be integrated uh, but we wait for those crisis points to make that change and wow chris we have covered an awful lot of ground today and i just noticed the time so we've got to wrap up this week's episode so you know, we we have to start like uh drawing out cord like theseus through the through the, the labyrinth here so you can find your way back <laughs> i i was thinking that as we were talking i really am not looking forward to putting the timestamps together for this episode because they are going to be long and interesting uh, i i they're starting to like timestamps for me are like are like haiku they're like poetry where <laughs> we can see like the whole episode encapsulated in like free verse. Um, but at least we can leave everybody with an experiment that they can try out on their own. And so uh, Chris and I had a little conversation about this and we thought something that allows you to explore the boundaries between you and somebody else might be a great place to start. So consider finding someone that you may not always agree with. Maybe it's on Facebook or 
even better, someone that you can actually see in person, or at least on Zoom, so that they're like real humans as bit of like, you know, digital humans. Um, and have a conversation on a subject that you may not entirely agree with. And if you notice yourself becoming anxious or angry in the process, sit with those feelings rather than rather than reacting to them or spending the conversation planning what you're going to say next and score points. Just sit with the feelings and allow a little bit of that boundary between you and the other to soften a bit and recognize that we are all in this together. And if you can do that, even that little moment might be a great thing to practice and experiment this week. Okay, now if you like experiments like this one, we have lots of others for you to consider in the Magic and Mastery Coven. It's a place where you can dive into planetary energies or other ways to live a more magical life or work in the context of an open dialogue community. Right now, the coven has over 50 hours of trainings, guided meditations, monthly magical challenges, and everything else that you could get going on your own magical path. Even better, there's no contracts, no long-term contracts that you need to sign. You're not signing your soul away when you join our Magic and Mastery Coven. If you want to find out more information, just go to www.magicandmastery.com slash coven and you'll find out more about what we offer. And before you go, don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode and other episodes, depending on what episode you're on. And that's at www.magicandmastery.com slash podcast. We've included timestamps and links to books and everything under the sun that we actually mentioned on these episodes. And uh, so you can find that all there. And thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Magic and Mastery with us. And of course, we love getting your feedback. It helps us figure out what makes you makes you happy, makes makes you stoked, what makes you jazzed. So we can provide more good stuff for you uh, for your uh, future episodes to come. And uh, it would mean so much to us too to rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you like, you know, share it with friends. You know, so glad that you tuned in, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>